The Gospel lesson this morning is from Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go on your way. See, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves to be paid. Do not move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and its people welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick who are there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not welcome you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock, our redeemer, our light. Amen. When a lesson opens with the words, after this, I want to know what this is. So I went back to the previous chapter in Luke and found the sending out of the twelve followed by a series of misunderstandings on the part of the disciples and would-be disciples. These were misunderstandings about Jesus and his mission, about the nature of the kingdom of God, and about the demands of discipleship. The most awkward moment was the famous spat among the disciples about which one of them was the greatest, when Jesus then puts a child by his side and says, the least among you, like this very little person with no money, no degrees, no job, the least among you is the greatest. So after this, seeing that it's clear that the 12 are going to need all the help they can get, Jesus commissions another 70 and sends them out two by two with pretty much the same instructions he had given to the 12. Go as lambs into the midst of wolves, travel light, Take no bag, no money, not even sandals. When you enter alien territory, the first thing you do, proclaim peace to this house. Then accept food and drink from those whose homes you have entered. Jesus sends his troops out unarmed, un unfunded, and totally vulnerable. If these poor guys are lucky enough to make it safely to the villages, the plan there, then, is to stake their well-being on the mercy of complete strangers, relying on their hospitality for a roof overhead and meals to eat. If they encounter hostility, the response is to be a little foot-shaking gesture. That'll show them. And whether welcome or resisted, 
the decisive act is the simple proclamation that the commonwealth of God is near, so close that you can reach out and touch it. This is the invasion Jesus launches, kingdom-building, gospel-style. My heart tells me that it's a thing of beauty, but my head says that it's absurd. And my gut tells me that if I have to go out into the world, if I have to venture into enemy territory, I'd rather go with Naaman, a guy who actually knows something about invasions, who leaves nothing to chance. Naaman was a great and mighty warrior, renowned in all the land, commander of the army of Aram, modern-day Syria. This was a man who knew how to get things done. But, and this is just the first of several ironies in this wonderfully provocative story, Naaman has a problem, an embarrassing one, not the sort of thing that's supposed to happen to someone of his stature. He had leprosy ugly, disfiguring leprosy. And apparently no one in his great country could help, except, and here's the next ironic twist, an inconsequential nobody. Naaman's wife had a young servant girl who had been acquired in one of Aram's raids on Israel. She said to her mistress, if only Mr. Naaman could go to the prophet in Samaria, then surely he would be cured a slave girl, even less important and powerful than the child Jesus would use to make his point about the least among us. A little slave girl has the answer to a big, important, powerful man's problem. That's the way it often goes in the Bible. Before we follow Naaman on his adventure, we're going to have a very quick Hebrew lesson. And I offer my thanks to Walter Brueggemann here because I am definitely not a Hebrew scholar. The Hebrew term for young servant girl is na'ara katana. Na'ara katana. That's how the original text refers to her. So let's say it together. Na'ara katana. Again, na'ara katana. Okay, so now remember that because we are going to have a quiz in a few minutes. So with the blessing of the, mighty, of the king of mighty Aram, Naaman headed south to pitiful little Israel to be cured of his disease. He set out with his whole entourage and with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and ever the well-dressed gentleman, 10 changes of clothes. In his pocket was a very proper letter of introduction from his king, along with a request for help. The whole thing was really quite impressive. The king of Israel, however, was more panicked than impressed when the enemy warrior appeared on his doorstep with a letter from the rival king. He thought it was a trap. Am I God that this man wants me to cure a man of his leprosy? It's a trick. The bullies up north are trying to pick a fight. And in rage or fear or both, the king tore his clothes. Well, apparently then, as now, royal gossip spread quickly. And Elisha, the very prophet the young servant girl had spoken of, heard that the king was coming a little unglued and sent word to him. Not to worry, your highness, Elisha said. Send the man to me and I'll take care of everything. 
So off Naaman went again with all of his men and his silver and his gold, his to die for wardrobe and his horses and chariots. He set out to see Elisha. Imagine what this must have looked like. The modern equivalent would be a five-star American general, chest loaded with medals, ensconced in a multi-vehicle motorcade, armed to the hilt, lights flashing, screeching to a halt in front of a mud hut in, say, Haiti? Now picture the occupant of the mud hut not even bothering to come out to greet the important foreign dignitary. That's the way it went. Naaman was expecting the red carpet treatment, but Elijah wasn't playing that game. Naaman was also expecting exotic, mysterious incantations and hocus-pocus and hand-waving over his disfigured flesh, but the prophet, through his messenger no less, simply said, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you will be healed. Yet another ironic twist, because as important as it is to the, our story of faith, the Jordan really is a pretty puny river. At certain times of the year, it, parts of it almost dry up completely. So the prophet's suggestion was like heaping insult on injury to the great man from Iran. Excuse me? Wash in the Jordan? Just who does this Elisha think he is? How dare he treat me like this? He doesn't bother to come out of his house when I arrive, but sends a messenger out instead. He doesn't wave his hands over my body and call on the name of his God to cure me, but tells me to wash in the Jordan. The Jordan, that stinking ditch of a stream they call a river down here. So Naaman stormed away in a rage and it looked like all was lost, like his pride and possessions and power would be his downfall, until some more lowly servants saved the day again, persuading him that it really would be silly not to try something as simple, as doable, as taking a few dips in the Jordan. You wouldn't hesitate to do something difficult, sir, so why not just try this? It can't hurt. To his credit, Naaman relented and did what Elisha told him to do. He went down to the Jordan and immersed himself seven times, and lo and behold, the text says that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. So here's the quiz. Do you remember the word for young servant girl back in verse 2? Anyone? Na ara katana. Good job. Well, now, way down here in verse 14, when Naaman's skin is restored, the term used is na arkatan. Same word, masculine form. The point is that the big, important, powerful warrior became like the little slave girl, weak and vulnerable. It was the only way he could be healed. Naaman had approached the Jordan lumbering under the weight of his pride and his stuff, his armor and swords, his silver and gold. But he stopped at the bank of the river because in order to immerse himself in the healing waters, first he had to let go of all that. He had to put aside his pride and remove his sword and shield and lay down his silver and gold. He had to unburden himself 
If he had tried to cling to it all as he waded into the water, he would certainly have drowned, even in the puny Jordan. When I picture Naaman at this decisive point in his life, I can't help but hear the words of the old spiritual, going to lay down my burden down by the riverside, going to lay down my sword and shield down by the riverside, going to study war no more. When Naaman laid down his burden, when he allowed himself to become weak and vulnerable, to receive direction from mere servants and help from strangers, only then was he transformed. Only then could he be healed. Which brings us back to the gospel lesson, the sending out of the 70 as lambs into the midst of wolves. Could it be that Jesus ordered this not so much to impose peace on towns that he'd soon be visiting himself, but rather to transform his own troops, the way Naaman had been transformed once he learned that often the only essential burden is the scariest one, no burden at all, no purse, no bag, no sandals, no money. As evidenced by the series of misunderstandings preceding this story in Luke, the assumptions of the disciples were the assumptions of the world. Assumptions like the priority of power and privilege, like us versus them, like independence and security first, compassion and community only after that. Old habits and assumptions die hard because they feel so natural and because they are so systematically reinforced by the culture. Jesus understood that. He understood that perhaps the only way to learn the radical interdependence that characterizes the commonwealth of God is to be thrown off the deep end into utter vulnerability, nakedness. I come in peace with nothing in my pockets. May I sleep in your house? Will you share your food? Can you heal my disease? Idealistic? Yeah. Impractical? Maybe. Impossible? I refuse to believe it. Because here and there, now and then, amidst all the stories of destruction and violence in our world, we still hear whispers of hope and see glimmers of a new way, a new vision of mission and kingdom. Years ago, in the very early days of the Iraq invasion, I read about a small U.S. military unit approaching an isolated village. They entered the village loaded down with all the apparel and paraphernalia of war and, not surprisingly, tension mounted and resistance began to bubble up among the locals. It looked for all the world as though bloodshed, a lot of bloodshed, was inevitable. But as the unit advanced on the local mosque and anxious anger grew, the quick-thinking American captain ordered his troops to kneel and to smile at the terrified villagers. And instantly, the atmosphere of hostility evaporated. 
Perhaps the problem with the alternative visions of mission, invasion, and kingdom that Jesus invites us to embrace is not that they are impossible or even impractical, but simply that they await the courage and imagination to be risked systematically. Gandhi had that courage and imagination. So did Martin Luther King, Jr. And so we give thanks for an unknown army captain, for his courage and imagination, for his willingness to lay down his burden, to risk being vulnerable, to risk seeking healing in a hostile world in enemy territory. We give thanks for every reminder that a nation's greatness, our nation's greatness, is not measured by tanks and weapons but by our unwavering commitment to equality, to justice, and to care for the small and vulnerable, the least among us. And today, as we worship, we are reminded that in Christ, this ideal, the kingdom of God, has come near, a commonwealth of interdependence close enough to touch if we will just reach out for it if we will just claim the imagination and courage to risk it. May it be so. Amen.